Hey, welcome back, Reveal, to our Transformed series. I am so glad that you are here with us. Get us back on track, back on course with uh, our Transform series. I know that life is all kinds of crazy right now, and that crazy has the potential to kind of knock us off course. Uh, and if you, have, uh, if you find yourself drifting a little bit right now, today's a good day to make a course correction. I hope you are living intentionally. I hope you are positioning yourself to allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does, that is transform us, change us, make us into uh, more like Jesus. And so uh, if, if you've drifted, course correction, let's get back on course, continue that transformed journey. The scripture passage that has pushed us forward throughout this entire series has been Romans 12 too, where it says, do not conform, do not live like everyone else lives. Don't live like the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And how are we transformed? Here it is, by the renewing, the renewing of our mind, the renewing of the way that we think. Transformation, it's not just about uh, polishing the outside so we look good. Transformation works from the inside out. Transformation starts uh, within and then eventually makes its way out. In other words, transformation is not just about behavior modification through greater willpower or greater resolve. It is what the Holy Spirit does within us, changes who we are at the core of our being. Here's some good news. Be encouraged by this, Philippians 1.6. And I am certain, Paul says, I am certain that God who began the good work. Now notice, who began the work in you? You didn't start it. You can't finish it. But God who began the good work in you, he will do what? He will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Here's the good news. The transformation process continues if you will position yourself to allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. Now, as you probably know, we have two messages left in our Transform series. Normally, this message today would have been given last Sunday, but in light of everything going on, I felt like I needed to address the current struggles uh, that, that we are experiencing. And so the final two messages will be dropped on Thursday, uh, one today and one next Thursday. I hope you will join us for it. Uh, now, whew, today's topic is probably the least anticipated topic out of all of the seven areas of transformation. Uh, we've looked at a lot. We've looked at spiritual health and physical health. Uh, we've looked at emotional health and uh, mental health, relational health. And when I tell you what the topic's gonna be, you're suddenly gonna lose internet connection. And we're talking about financial health. Are you still there? Is this thing on? Hey, so I understand Nobody likes to talk about finances in the church, and I just want to get this part out of the way. Part of the reason that we don't like to hear about finances in the church is that the church has abused this topic. Pastors have abused this topic. Uh, I, I mean, we, we pastors, and I try to distance myself from that group, but I am a pastor, so we have used guilt and strong-arm techniques and manipulation and uh, the enticing of great prosperity and riches, right? Everything that we can in order to get you to open your wallet. Something it may go something like this. Hey, if you want to ensure your health in a COVID-19 era, well, then you need to plant your seed money of $19 to make sure that health stays upon you. And don't forget, it's not just you, it's your family and your friends and your extended family. Plant a seed of $19 to ward off the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, that's not who we are as a church. 
But the church at large has been guilty of that kind of response, those, that kind of strong-arm tactics. But I also want to tell you that that ha- doesn't happen at this church. It doesn't happen with this pastor. And I have been very conscious to make sure that we do not ever guilt you. I will never guilt you or entice you to give. Uh, I will always invite you to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus and let Jesus do what Jesus does. Uh, And so uh, I want us to, as as we're kind of talking about a topic that's difficult, let's just kind of put the church's response, the universal church's response on hold, because I also want you to understand that the reason that this this topic is difficult to talk on is not just because of the church, but you bear some of the responsibility. I bear some of this responsibility. See, the other reason why money is so difficult to talk about is because of our love affair with money. And if we're honest, anytime we feel that someone or something is coming in between what we love, we become defensive. And so, yes, the church plays a role in this, and the church has abused the topic, but we are lovers of stuff. And that's the other reason why we do not like to hear about this topic, but we're going to put all that on hold, and we're going to open Scripture and see what God has to say to us regarding, regarding money and regarding finances. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will, what, hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You, catch this, you cannot You cannot serve both God and money. Now, at this point, we're thinking, well, this must be a typo. I mean, Jesus would have never said you can't serve God and money because my struggle that I face daily is the struggle of serving God or the devil. It's serving God or sin, and Jesus says, no, 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 that's not going to be your daily struggle. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But the struggle that you're going to encounter as, as, as our creator, he knew something about us. And he said, the struggle that you're going to encounter is this thing called money. In other words, Jesus knew that the number one competitor for our affection is that, is money. That's what he's saying. The number one competitor for your affection is money. And he's right. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, he is absolutely Right. And so, so let, let, let's just kind of put it all aside and let's just enter into Scripture and see what God has to tell us about this topic. Um, Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, he says this, that there are three conversations necessary for every human being. The conversation of the mind, the conversation of the heart, and the conversation of of the wallet. And that third conversation is always the most difficult because many Christians believe that we can kind of come to Jesus and we can maintain our our same belief structure when it comes to money or when it comes to spending or debt load or generosity, that, that, that our attitude towards money before coming to Christ can remain the same after we come to Christ. But God is a God of transformation and he's a God of change and he's a God of renewing our mind, renewing our thinking, including this topic of finances. So we're just going to jump right into the deep end today, and we're going to see what the Bible has to say, loosen your collar, about debt. All right? Let's see what the Bible has to say about debt. Here's the first thing. That debt is a form of slavery or bondage. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave 
to the lender. That means that, hey, every time that we take out our credit card and we purchase something that we cannot pay off at the end of the month, or every time that we take out a loan for something that is depreciating, that we are, in fact, becoming a slave to that thing that we purchase. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, come on, that's not true. How can I be a slave to my stuff? But this is exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew 6, 24, where he said, hey, you cannot, you will never be able to serve two masters because something is going to master you. And we're going to unpack that, all right? Because I know you're thinking that this can't be true. Money money can't be my master. But is it possible that we can be so in love with our stuff, so in love with money, that it actually begins to rule us? So assess yourself. Ask yourself this question. Do you intentionally pursue more stuff? And if you're an American, most of of us would answer and say yes. Do you scheme to find a way to pay for stuff? Scheming is like, well, if I quit eating out, I can afford this nicer car. Do the kids really need a haircut before school? Because I, can, I, can make, I think I can make this work. Here's another question. Do you overly guard and protect your stuff? Has your desire for more caused you to do something that you would later, regr- later regret? Have you ever made a large purchase that then keeps you up at night and you're wondering how you're going to make the payment or if you even want to make the payment? Have you ever given yourself to an impulse buy that has negatively negatively affected your well-being or your peace of mind? And if your answer is like mine, which is yes, then in that moment, your devotion to more stuff that made you do it or made you buy it, in that moment, Jesus says, your devotion to stuff has mastered you because it caused you to do something that you may later regret or cause you to buy something that is going to keep you up at night wondering how you are going to pay for it. Think of it this way. Have you ever wanted to change jobs or start a business or take a a risk on a new career, but you couldn't because of your debt load, because of the bills? In that moment that you cannot step out and risk because of your debt load, your stuff owns you. It's become your master is what Jesus is saying that you become a slave to that which you owe, and he's right again. Scripture is right again. Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. So what does the Bible say about debt? It says that that debt is a form of slavery or bondage, but then debt is also, also a result of unchecked appetites. Debt is a result of unchecked appetite. Here's the thing about appetite. Appetites are never satisfied. Think of it this way. Have you ever ate so much or you were so hungry that you ate so much or you loved what you were eating that you ate so much that you were just sick after you ate? Like like your last swallow stopped here because food had backed up that much, right? It happens every Thanksgiving. It's down, sitting at the table, unbuttoning the pants. Maybe you're a sweatpant person. You don't even come with button pants. It's just sweatpants that expand. Right? And we eat so much, and, and at the end of that meal, they roll you to the couch, and we say something like, I will never eat again. Or we say, I'm not going to eat anything for the rest of the day. And then about 9 p.m. rolls around, and you're like, well, where's that leftover turkey? See, here's the thing about appetites. They're never fully satisfied. And that means that no matter how much we buy, No matter how much we get, how much we make, that appetite, if we're honest, will never completely 
be satisfied. We will always want more. And so debt is often a result of unchecked appetites. Appetites that go unchecked will almost always lead us into some type of bondage. doesn't matter what that appetite is, whether it's for sex or for pleasure or for drugs. or It doesn't matter. It will always lead us into some type of bondage. And it is this unsatisfied appetite that has led us to be both a nation and a people in bondage to debt. Hey, did you know that in the 1950s you could not borrow money to buy a house? Or, I'm sorry, borrow money to buy a car? And then in 1965, uh, the, the longest auto loan you could get was only two years. And then it moved to three years in 1970. And then late in the 70s, it was four years. And now you can buy a car with an 84-month loan. I mean, put a doormat and put a doorbell on it. It's like a house. Catch this. Catch this. That the longest home mortgage in 1950 was seven years. And now today, almost everyone has a 30-year mortgage. And catch this part. In California, they're experimenting with a 50-year mortgage. A 50-year mortgage. Now, here's the question. Does our mountain of consumer debt and our growing national debt say something about who our master really is? See, our debt shines a light on a bigger problem, that we have an appetite that is never fully satisfied. Our country, our government, our people have appetites that are out of control. Get this. Out of all the countries in the world, do you know which country has the most amount of debt? We're number one. But we shouldn't be number one. You certainly don't want to be number one. Debt is a problem. It's a national problem. It's an individual problem. And it happens because of unchecked appetites. We want what we want. We want it now. Don't ask me to save for it. Don't ask me to wait for it. Don't ask me to sacrifice for it. I want what I want, and I want it now. Here's what else the Bible says about debt. That debt is often the result of the sin of presumption. Look at James 4, 13 through 16. Now listen, you who say, go to that next, uh, next one there, Ryan. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Go to the next scripture, please. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Listen, listen. Here's how the sin of presumption works. The sin of presumption is the belief that you know the way things are going to turn out in the future. And then you make decisions based on that presumption. In other words, you're saying that I, I, that I know I will always have this job, or I know I'll always get that, or I know I'm going to get that raise, or I'm sure they're going to give me that promotion. I know I'm never going to get laid off. I'm never going to have health issues. And so what do we do? We overextend ourselves. Betting on the prediction of the future is right. I was 26 years old, and I had a great job. was making good money. And on a whim, I pulled into a Toyota dealership and bought a brand new Toyota four-wheel drive truck, and it was gorgeous. And why not? I had a great job. I was secure in my job. I was making good money. And 12 months later, my pastor called me in and offered me a worship pastor position that came with a 50% pay reduction. Guess who could no longer afford the payment 
of that truck. And guess who was choked by the payment of that truck that I bought basically on the sin of presumption because I thought I'm always going to have this job. Do you, do you get it? Presumption, we think that we know the future. And so we buy the car thinking that we're going to be okay. If I can't afford it now, I'll get a raise next year and I'll, I'll, I'll grow into it. Or we buy a house now thinking I'll get a couple raises and, and, and we'll grow into it. We'll be able to pay it in the future. So, so th there's a lot that the Bible says about debt. None of it is any good. And so let's reset our thinking uh, just, just quickly on, on how we should think about wealth. And I'm going to go through these quickly. Here, here's some thoughts for you. Wealth is not as valuable as a relationship with God. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little, better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Here, here's what scripture is saying. Better to have a little with, with the proper reverence of God, the proper worship of God, than to have a lot, but to be living in turmoil. Look at the second one, number two. Wealth is not as valuable as family and loving relationships. Proverbs 15, seven. Better a small serving of vegetables. You, you vegetarians, you should love this one. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Now listen, I've somewhat lived this one because my father has pursued wealth his entire life, right? He wanted more of everything. And, and now, almost in his 80s, his greatest regret is neglecting his family because he thought that money was greater than family and close, loving relationships. Here's number three. Wealth is not as valuable as, as justice. Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Now, when you see the word righteousness, you ought to think about people who value community or value other people uh, more than just their own personal gain. And so what it's saying is those who are concerned not just with the bottom line, but rather willing to forego greater profits for the common good. Better is to have a little with righteousness, better to be thinking about others, better to be like Jesus and have little than to have more, but get more based upon an injustice. Righteous people understand that money is designed to help the community and not just build themselves. And so the righteous, they don't get involved in payday loans charging crazy amounts of interest. The, the righteous forego building an environmentally uh, destructive factory. The, the righteous forego business opportunities when, when it becomes about profit over people. This is what scripture is telling us right here. Understand that there are people even today who are making billions upon the injustice of others. And scripture would say it's just not right. Companies with the annual revenue in the billions, and yet today when, when employees are asked to stay home, those, those companies with revenues in the billion cannot afford to pay their, their employees. Scripture would say that is wealth based upon injustice, and Scripture has something to say about it. CEOs that make three to 500 times more than the average worker. There is an injustice in all of this. Now listen, I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm anti-injustice. And so Scripture says, look, there's a problem when this is occurring. Here's the next one. Wealth is not as valuable as peace. Proverbs 17.1, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You know this is true. Whenever you have your family over for 
Thanksgiving or Christmas, the tables spread. But if you've got family members that you don't get along with and there's strife and quarreling, you know, man, I'd rather have a piece of bread and peace right now than all this food with strife. Scripture is saying that, 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 uh, that many people are confused about what is most valuable and that we trade in what is of ultimate value for that which is of little value. And Scripture says, here's what makes life worth living. Knowing Jesus, growing old with a loving family and friends, having deep friendships, caring uh, about the greater community, and having peace of mind. Do you see it? Do you, you see what Scripture is trying to teach us? And so here's the first thing we have to ask ourselves. So how do, how do we break this? How do we break the power of money over us? And I got one simple thought for you. Get a new CFO. Get a new chief financial officer in your life. Remember Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve two masters. You will love the one or love the other. Who is the CFO of your money? Who's the chief financial officer of your stuff? Who's managing your money? Because listen, whoever controls your money is who has your heart. This is Matthew 6, 21, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is there also. So wherever you place your treasure, that's what you value most. And if you want to know what you value most, someone says, hey, look at your, look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. Look at your bank account. And so who is the CFO of your life? Listen, do you know why God asked for a tithe, the tithe is 10%, why God asked for a tithe in the Old Testament? It was because he knew the number one competitor for their heart would be their stuff. And it was, one day that God, it was one way that God said, this will help loosen your love affair with your stuff. Give 10% back to me. It was a way for God to say, this is one way that you will have to trust me to have enough. Now look, I, I understand that there are some that will, that will push against this and, 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 and they will say, well, the tithe was Old Testament. and right, They don't have an opinion about anything in the Bible. When it comes to money, suddenly they're a scholar. And if you want to make a case that the, Old Testament, that the tithe was the Old Testament, Old Testament, I would say, okay, you very well may be right. But I think the New Testament tells us to even go above the tithe. And so if you want to take that point of saying this is Old Testament, stop teaching it, all right, I think the New Testament calls us above that. This idea of generosity is woven throughout Scripture. And so if you have such a difficult time with the concept of tithe, let me ask a more weightier question. Why is that such a problem? Granted, the church has abused it, I agree. But is it possible that part of the reason is because you feel something is coming between you and your stuff? See, this is the heavier question. And so I just, I just want to ask you, who is the CFO of your life? What does that look like? And if you say it's Jesus, then how do you know? Like, what, what are you doing that, that proves that? That is the question that I want to leave you with. Who is the CFO? I'm not going to beat you up about giving. I'm not going to entice you and tell you you're going to be rich and all that's going to come. I just want to invite you to make Jesus the Lord of your finances. And then I'll let Jesus do the rest. See, financial health does not mean you will necessarily have a lot of money. It will mean you will have the proper view of money. And that is where financial health begins. So let's be transformed in our finances. Lord, transform us even in this area of financial health. We need to just kind of submit in this area that we hold on to so tightly because if we're honest, man, money is our number one competitor. But we want to open hands and we want to release it. 
And we want to make you the Lord, even over our finances. So continue, continue the transformation process in us is what we pray. As we position ourselves to make you Lord over all things in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. You have some wrestling to do on this one, but it's good for you. It's good for me. God bless you. Uh, See you Sunday for another sermon, and then we'll drop the Wednesday night group stuff at 6.30 on Wednesday, and then the final message on Thursday at 6.30. God bless.